My name is Ann, and I'm an alcoholic. It's good to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to welcome all the people who are here for the first roundup, and I wish it was you up here and not me. It's past 10 o'clock. Don't you go to bed? I figured I was a 10 o'clock speaker. Everybody go home. I want to thank the committee for asking me to come up here. And I also want to thank Clancy for what he said tonight about the highest compliment you could pay anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous was people who stayed active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope to tell you that I want to stay active in Alcoholics Anonymous because I'll never be able to give you back what you've given me, no matter how long I'm sober, because this program has given me my life, it's given me my husband, my three kids, and it's given me dignity, and I didn't have those things when I came into you 15 years ago. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous 15 years ago, and I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't know what an alcoholic was, but I didn't want it. I've learned since that alcoholism is a disease of denial, and if anything, I don't got it, and I didn't want it. I came here because my husband had threatened me, and uh, I had heard about AA when I was 19, and I knew it was going to get different when I got married, and it did. And so he told me that I had to do something or he was going to leave me. And so I remembered about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I called, and I came here, and I looked around, and everybody was real old. (laughs) I was 23 years of age, and I felt very sorry for all of you. Because you're all over 35, and you had one foot in the grave, and you ought to be here. I have to quit saying that because I'm over 35 now. I'm one of those old people. And I stayed here, went to one meeting, and I left Alcoholics Anonymous. I graduated, and I went out, and I drank some more. And it took eight months to convince me that I had a problem with alcohol. Because in that eight months, I lost everything, and I'm not talking about material things because I didn't have any. But I'm talking about everything inside of me. The fight was over. And I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous very angry because, you see, I couldn't talk to you when I first came the first time because alcohol brought out another person in me and I could be whatever I wanted to be. And when I came back here, I could talk a lot and I swore a lot. And I was very, very angry and I threw chairs down and I wanted you to fix me. And I wanted you to fix me in 10 minutes. I didn't want to wait. You know, and they told me that it took me many years to get me screwed up and it was going to take me that many to get well. I am grateful today for the people that I came into Alcoholics Anonymous to, those old timers that were there for me when I got here. I didn't always feel grateful for them. In fact, there was a time in my sobriety I used to get on my knees and pray that I'll die. (laughs) Because every one of them remembered me and every one of them knew what I was like. And when I started to get a little well, I wanted them to forget what I was like when I got here. But there were people who talked about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they talked about 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they talked about getting active in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they talked about the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would go to those meetings, and I would sit in the chair, and I wondered what those 12 steps were, and I would wonder where they were, and how often was I going to have to run up and down them because that was part of the punishment for being an alcoholic. 
And I asked somebody one night what they were, and they said, they read them every meeting, Annie. Why don't you listen? But it's very hard to listen when your mind is going 90 miles an hour, and you're twitching in the seat, and you think it's a reading program you've joined because they do all this reading in these meetings, and I'm going absolutely out of my skin. I heard those steps for the very first time, I think, when I was about three or four months sober. Through the years, the steps have changed for me, and that's good, because they tell me that if you don't grow in Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll go. And God, I don't want to go. I've got to stay. And they changed through the years, and I applied them differently every year, and I applied them differently every day. I only work the steps when I'm really hurting, to be honest with you folks. When things are going real good, I just kind of flow with it, you know. Yeah. And it works real well that way. But when I hear them for the first time, this is how I apply them to my life. And the first step says we admit we're followers of alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. I could admit I was followers of alcohol. I wouldn't have come here. I wasn't followers of a Coke or a coffee. I was followers of alcohol. But I could not admit my life was unmanageable. I don't identify with drunks who manage their lives when they're out there drinking. I never managed my life. I thought about something, I ran and did it and I suffer the consequences later. I have since learned, and since I've come to this program, is that I missed my calling in life. I should have gone into management. I am so good at it. <laughs> you know, I get in and I manage my husband's life, and I manage my kids, and I manage those girls that I sponsor, and I don't do a very good job. There's a part in the big book that says that God is the director and we're the agent. And for some reason or another, him and I get that screwed up. I want to be the director and let him be the agent, you know. <laughs> I can't honestly stay here tonight that I have taken the second half of that step 100% in my life. It seems that I'm always going back there and, and taking that step because when I get in there and I start managing people's lives on my own, I get really messed up emotionally. The second step says we came to believe the power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, I knew I was insane when I got here. But I didn't believe that God was going to restore me. That step says that we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It doesn't say when, where, or how it's going to happen. And I've had a lot of crazy sobriety. And I've been crazy, but I haven't found it necessary to take a drink. And so I came to believe that there is a power greater than myself because my life is so much different today than it ever has been in my whole entire life. And then they want me to make a decision God, I can't make a decision. Today we had lunch and someone made a decision and I was so grateful that they made a decision because I didn't know what I wanted. And I looked at him and I said, I'm glad you made that decision because I would have sat here all day long wondering what, who's going to make this decision for me. And they want me to make a decision to turn my will and my life over to care of God as I understand him. I don't know about you, but God and I weren't speaking. Uh, we had parted ways many years before. And so I had to make a decision because that's what they told me and I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of people in Alcoholics Anonymous because they were doing something with their lives that I wasn't doing and I knew that they had something there and it wasn't just one person, I turned it over to groups, I needed an awful lot of help. And then they want me to take a fourth step and I wasn't going to take a fourth step, that's for those of you who were really sick and I didn't need that. And this guy came up to me one night. His wife was my sponsor at the time. His name is John B. And John stands about 6'4", and he weighed about 280 pounds. And I was about nine months sober, and he said, Annie, he said, you're going to have a birthday pretty soon, aren't you? And I said, yes. He said, have you done the fourth and fifth step? And I said, no, and I'm not going to. <laughs> he said, Annie, he said, if you don't do that fourth and fifth step, he said, when you take your cake, 
He said, I'm going to announce it all over Huntington Beach, not to listen to you, that you have a more success. Now, I was better known in Orange County as Crazy Annie, and I didn't want anybody to think that I wasn't working your lousy program. <laughs> I thought, my God, if they, if they find out that I'm not working these steps, they'll really know that I'm really nuts. So I went home, and I thought about it, and I used to go to a Monday night step study, and I went out, and I got called my sponsor up that day and I said, I'm coming over on Monday night and I'm going to start working on that fourth step. And she said, oh, good. And I said, I want to stop going to Monday night meeting and you and I can get this thing done. And I uh, <laughs> went out and I got a big notepad and I got her some pencils and some pens and I went to her house on that Monday night and I handed her all this good equipment that I had bought her. And I said, she looked at me real strange. She was a real strange lady. And she said, what is this for? And I said, I'm going to tell you all about it. Now, you've just got to write it. And she looked at me and she said, I'm not going to write it. She said, I've, been my, I've done my inventory. And I said, but now you get to do mine. And she said, no, I'm not doing that for you. You know, I'd call her up on the phone and I would tell her things like, you have to do this. You're my sponsor. That's what sponsors are for. And you know that woman wouldn't do it. She kept saying no. It was like I think she was put on a record on the phone and just say no, 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 no. So I had to cop. I had to cop out to it. I had to cop out to the fact that I couldn't read when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not talking about because I was drunk or because of knife blindness or any of that stuff. I could not read when I came here. I could not write when I came here. And I couldn't tell her that. And I told that lady that. And she said, it's okay, Annie, but you've got to do it. And I don't care how you do it, but you do it. And I did. I went home and over a period of time before my year birthday, a lot of pressure. I did that inventory and I made a lot of marks. And I went back to that lady and I gave her that fifth step. I am absolutely, totally positive that that woman pointed out some of my character defects that night. But I don't know about you. I didn't have any character defects when I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is very difficult to have any character defects when you've got no bloody character and they want character defects. <laughs> I have a lot of character defects today, folks. God has removed those that stand in the way of my fellow men. But I've got a lot of character defects today and I'm aware of my character defects. And I like my character defects because simply because that tells me I'm getting character in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The seventh step says we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Those of you who don't have children, please go get some. <laughs> I guarantee you, you'll learn whether you have shortcomings or not. <laughs> I believe that that is the last place where I have worked a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It took me a long time, and some days I don't do too well there still. But it's a lot better than it was. I uh, would go to meetings, and it's nice to be wonderful, and it's nice for people to tell you, you love, that you're loved and they're cared about. And I would tell them that I chased Dean that they were nice, and I beat on my kids, and they'd say, that's okay, Annie, just don't drink. You're not drinking. And I would go home, and I would take my AA coat off, and I would go in that house, and I was an absolute screaming Mimi. It, you know, I know that I've got better in that area of my life simply because Every summer at this time, when the kids are out of school, I'm very suicidal. And I don't want to commit suicide anymore, 
I guess I'm growing up with the children. My oldest girl is 17, and I tell my kids that I don't like being a mommy, and it's okay for me not to like being a mommy. It's very difficult to be an alcoholic woman and to be a mommy, because I don't know how to be a mommy. And some days they mommy me, and some days I mommy them, and we've got a wonderful, beautiful relationship today, as long as we've got that understanding. I made a list of people I'd harmed, and I put Annie on top of the list, and it took me a long time to forgive me. I still have a hard time forgiving me. It's easier for me to forgive you, but I still have a hard time even in my program today. Well, I can beat on myself like crazy. I did make a list, and I did go make those amends. I would like to tell you that I take a daily inventory every day, that I sit down and I write every day, and I be a liar. The only time I will take a daily inventory is when the same thing keeps reoccurring, and I then finally will take a daily inventory. I will write about it. But I can honestly tell you here tonight, there isn't a day that goes by, or an evening when I go to bed at night, and I think over my day, and I think about some of the people that I might have harmed, that, you know, there was a time I would not promptly admit I was wrong. I would not call you up and apologize to you if I hurt your feelings, or I did something that was not right. But someone told me one time that you went to bed and you really didn't care, and that made it even worse. So I decided that I like to have my comfort too, and I will make my amends real direct, real quick. Then they want me to meditate. The eleventh step, soft prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of the will for me and the power to carry that out. Now I love that step today because that step promises me emotional and mental sobriety. But when I came here, I didn't even know what meditation was. I knew what medication was, but meditation, you know, I had no idea. That was a big word. And I remember sitting home and I would sit on the couch and I'd close my eyes because they said, you know, you, you kind of think. And I would think of my group and, and I would get into all these weird sex things and I would fall asleep. So I quit meditating. I had to give it up. I asked somebody one time what meditation was, and they told me that meditation was a higher plane of thinking. Now, when you're eight, nine months sober, and you're coming off the streets, I mean, and your mind is in the gutter, it's really difficult to have a higher plane of thinking. I guarantee you. The 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry the message to alcoholics and to practice these principles on all our affairs. There isn't a day that goes by, there isn't somebody at my house from Alcoholics Anonymous. I really truly believe that the newcomer is the lifeblood of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I was talking to Sylvia today and we were talking about how people leave Alcoholics Anonymous, and I always have to remember, who would have been here for me if every old timer decided they got theirs and they left? There would have been nobody here for me. So I have to be here for the next fellow coming through. I also believe that there is people in Alcoholics Anonymous with X number of years of sobriety that sit around and they're hurting, and because of the newcomer, they will not express the feelings because they don't want to hurt the newcomer. I need that old-timer. I really need that old-timer because I need that old-timer to remind me and to let me know that I can get through some of the difficult times that I am going to get through. Because, you see, I had this illusion when I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that if you had two years of sobriety, you had it all together. My sponsor told me, Mary R. said, that she got it all together one time and she forgot where she put it. 
I don't ever want to get it all together, folks. You know, I am too sick to get it all together. And so I need that old-timer and Alcoholics Anonymous to be there for me because things do happen. We, our children grow up and they get into trouble, and, and I want to know that I can stay sober through those rough times. I'd like to go back here and share with you some of the things that I found out about Annie, and I found out a great deal about Annie, you know, an awful lot. I found out about me, and it's unbelievable some of the things that I found out about me. Through that fourth, fourth, fourth step that I took in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it took the top layer off of me. I'm like an onion. to keep peeling. Now I want you to know if there's any Irish here tonight, please. I'm not talking about your family. I'm talking about my family. I'm talking about a very, very sick family from Ireland. I was born and raised in Ireland, and I'm the eighth child out of ten, and it was absolutely, totally insanity. Now, I've got a sister that lives out here, and she will tell you a whole different story. And I used to look at her and say, do I come from that family too? You know, because I did never saw it that way. I saw a lot of commotion, a lot of anger, a lot of fighting, and I lived with a lot of fears. I went back to I was about six years of age, and I shared this part of my story simply because I really believed that I was getting ready for alcohol way before I ever picked up my first drink. I also truly believed that if I hadn't found alcohol, I would have gone totally insane. And the alcohol turned around and beat me to the pulp until I found Alcoholics Anonymous and I thought I was going to go insane here too. But I went back to when I was about six, and my father's an alcoholic, and my father would go out to Flanagan's and he'd come home and he would beat on my mother. And I remember as a little girl, I'd be upstairs and I'd put the pillow over my head, and I would pray to that God that they would teach me about, and I would ask him to please let him kill her, or maybe she would kill him, or maybe I would die. And I'd get up the next morning and I had all of these things going on inside of me, and I didn't know what they were, because when I came to you, you taught me how to label things. And what they were was guilt, remorse, and I was a bad child for thinking these bad things of my parents. I went to Catholic school, because that's all there is in the part of Ireland I come from. I come from the South. And people have asked me, Annie, how come you didn't get an education if you went to Catholic school? It's very easy. You just got to have Catholic nuns. <laughs> I... We're sharing one day with Mary, Mary R. about all these horrible things that these nuns did to me. I mean, all these humiliating things they did to me. And Mary looked at me and she said, Annie, she said, you really think you had it so bad? She said, I had German nuns and they were trained by Hitler. <laughs> so what I want you to know is there's always going to be somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous who's got a hell of a lot worse than you. <laughs> But I went to Catholic school, and in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says the brainstorms are not for us, and I had my first brainstorm in second grade. And I got so tired of this nun hitting me every morning. I never knew that catechism. I couldn't remember it. And she would get a hold of me, and she would hit, get those round pointers that they use, you know, and man, she'd come down across my knuckles. So this morning, I decided I was going to get her first. And I went into that classroom. And I knew she was going to get me, and she grabbed a hold of me, and I up and popped the one across the face. <laughs> Mother Superior was in the other room, and Mother Superior saw me do. She just happened to look, because it was the last petition. She just happened to look at the time that I hit her. Always was caught. And I stood there, and 30 kids, and Mother Superior saw me do it, and I said, I didn't do it. <laughs> I didn't do it. 
They took me out of there and they moved me down to another grave. And I was to kneel in front of these two big statues, the Catholic crucifix statues. And there was these hardwood floors and I was supposed to be praying, I assume. I always say three weeks, but when you're in second grade, a week feels like three weeks. I don't care who you are. And they wouldn't let me back in because I wouldn't apologize. And I went back up to the class because I got tired of kneeling on those hardwood floors with those big knots. And I went into that classroom and I remember like it was yesterday and I stood in front of all those kids. And I lowered my eyes and I said, I'm sorry. But something happened inside. And what happened inside was it was you against me. You should never have done that to me. It was always you against me. And I left school, my years of school, because to see through the good people of Alcoholics Anonymous, people who were interested in me and who cared about me, took me to different places and found out that I got a learning disability. I've got a thing called dyslexia. And I do everything in reverse. And so that's nothing new. I'm still doing things in reverse. But I had no that I had the ability to learn today. And these nuns didn't know what to do with me, so I spent the great majority of the time in the dunces' corners with big hats on and D's and outside the door. And they tried to break my spirit. They said they were trying to break my will, but they almost broke my spirit, is what they did with me. I left school and I went to work in a factory, like all most young Irish girls do. And I had all those hopes and dreams that every other girl had. I was going to find me a nice Irish fellow and get married. And I am so grateful today that God doesn't answer stupid prayers. <laughs> I found boys and I found alcohol all in the same week. And I remember my first drink and I remember my last drink and there was a lot of drinking in between. And I was at a dance and this guy told me that if I drank this half a bottle of cognac, he would give me three dollars which was a pound note in our money. But I had to drink this half a bottle of cognac and I had to drink it down and I wasn't to stop. And I did. At 14 years of age, folks, I would have done anything for money. Absolutely anything for money. I got very sick and I went into the bathroom and I threw up and I came back out and I said, give me my money. And I went up to the bar. Now, if you don't know anything about the Irish culture, you know, I mean, you just have to name your drink and you can get it. You don't have to be an age. You don't have to be 21 or 18. If you know how to order, they'll serve it to you. And I went up and I got another drink, and I can tell you what happened. It took away that thing that was in the pit of my gut, that lump that was in right in my gut. And it didn't matter whether my father beat on my mother. It didn't matter whether I had no education. I had found the secret. I had found the secret to living. I didn't drink every day from that time on, but by God, I drank every opportunity from that time on. By the time I was 17 years of age, my father made the decision for me. It was nothing to do with me. Today, I'm very grateful that he made this decision because, you see, I really believe today through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is the fact that this decision came from a, a supreme being. My father decided that I should come to California because the streets were paved with gold. I'm still looking, folks. I've been here 20 years. <laughs> I had never been anywhere in Ireland. As far as I've ever gotten, Ireland was double into the zoo, and that's not too far from where I live. And I remember asking him, my aunt took me up to Dublin, and they filled out all my papers, and they got me all ready, and, and I was so anxious, and I knew there was going to be different, and I knew that once I got to this country, I was never going to tell anybody I was Irish. Nobody would ever know I was Irish. I had a boat like I stepped off the bloody boat, but nobody would ever know I was Irish. <laughs> I don't mind being Irish today, simply because 
If it wasn't for us Irish, you could hold your AA meetings in a phone booth. <laughs> I'm not saying that that's all you have to be in order to be a member, but it helps. Someone told me one time, not too long ago, they told me that God created whiskey because he was afraid the Irish was going to take over the world. <laughs> I remember this time in my life, I remember asking my dad if he'd let me go to England. I had some brothers scattered out through England. If he'd let me go to England and stay there a year, and then I'd be willing to go on to the States. And he said, no, the Queen of England has screwed up that half of the family, and by God, she isn't going to screw up this half of the family. The Queen of England has got blamed for more hours going wrong than anybody I know. And I often wondered who he blamed for me. I came here, and I remember getting on that plane, and I remember the feeling, and the feeling was freedom. But it was behind a lot of champagne, that feeling of freedom. I was never to feel that feeling again until I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it didn't happen in my first six months. That feeling of freedom has come very slow. But today I can tell you I'm free. I'm free from the bondage of my past. My past does not hold anything for me today other than the fact to share it with you. And I'm free inside. I'm free to choose what I want to do with my life. And those are some of the things that you good people gave me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I lived in Salisbury's for the next couple of years with a very nice family. And I was very impressed with this family. This woman had a bar in her house. And we didn't have a bar in our house. We did most of our drinking in the pub. And this woman used to drink 108 proof vodka. And I used to drink 108 proof vodka and I'd fill the bottle up with water. And then she could never understand how come she never got a buzz on. She was drinking pure water. <laughs> I did go back to these people after I got sober and I did make an amends to them because I really felt that I needed to make amends to them. They were very nice people. And I never knew how to handle people who were nice. I never knew how to deal with people who did not express anger and throw each other across the living room floor. I, that was not part of my lifestyle. And that woman was very grateful that I had found the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. She said they knew there was something really weird wrong with me. They just didn't know what. That woman wanted me to go to school. And I remember her taking me down to Redondo Beach High. And I couldn't tell her my secrets. I couldn't tell her that I was absolutely terrified of my peers. And I was terrified she was going to find out that I couldn't read or write and I couldn't fill out those bloody forms. And I stood outside that door and I was shaking so bad. I literally shake and I always shook. I shook because I was about a child and I knew that's why I shook it. And it wasn't because of the amount of alcohol I was drinking at that time in my life. And I was sliding down the door and I can tell you what was happening to me. I was like going into a catatonic state of mind with absolute sheer fear. You see, I don't want no secrets anymore. My life is an open book and I don't want to have any secrets today because I find freedom in letting you know my secrets. And that woman looked at me and she said, Annie, you don't have to go there. And I didn't have to go there. I ended up running around with Donald Beach Pier, and I ended up running around with all you people who use a lot of hard drugs. I never got involved in drugs, folks. And the only reason I didn't get involved in drugs was because I was terrified that if I was caught, I would be automatically deported out of this country, and my father would meet me at Dublin Airport, and I would never live to tell what happened. This woman took care of that period of my life. She went down to those places and told them if they didn't stop serving me, she would have them all closed up. I moved uptown. I didn't know where I belonged. God, what a feeling not knowing where I belong. You know, when I come to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
I know that I belong and it feels good. I fit in here. And I didn't know where I belonged. I didn't belong with the Irish because they just changed addresses when they came to this country. And I didn't want anything to do with them because I didn't want to be Irish. And I didn't belong with the American people even though I loved your country. I didn't belong with you because every time I would talk to you, you talked about education. And when you don't have any education, there isn't very much left to talk about. And at that time of my life, I remember walking along Catalina Avenue not knowing where I belonged with no shoes on, an old pair of pants, and a wine bottle. Now, if you want to know, I'm not a high-class drunk. I drank Ripple. <laughs> now, if you've never got drunk on Ripple, I guarantee you, you've really missed a trip, you know? <laughs> I drank everything and anything, but when I was buying, I bought Ripple because it was 37 cents a bottle, and it came in a long neck bottle, and you could drink a lot of Ripple, and all you had to do the next day was drink water and get drunk all over again. Man, I got too drunk for the price of one. But I remember that time in my life and that horrible desperation inside of me with that ripple bottle in the paper sack. Now, I'm not a wino. I'm a winette. <laughs> walking, walking along the streets, giving every car that went by the finger and hating you all. Hating you. I took the less of two evils at that time of my life. I started running around the Mexicans. Now, I don't know if you've got any Mexicans in Minnesota. We've got a lot of them in California. And Mexicans are very much like the Irish. The only difference between the Mexicans and the Irish is that we ate potatoes and they ate beans. The only difference. <laughs> they drink hard, love hard, beat the hell out of you on Saturday night, whether you need it or not. And I met this guy and his whole family, and he was strange. I mean, he was really strange. He was different. Because he drank early in the morning. I only drank in the afternoon. But he introduced me to the morning drink, and it was very exciting, getting beat up and jumping out of cars. I got another one of those brainstorms, and Orme always says, when you drink, don't think. And I got to thinking one day, and I'd be messing around with this guy for a while, and I got to thinking, no, you ought to marry me. And I went and I proposed to him, and he rejected me. He laughed at me. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't handle rejection. And so I decided immediately I was going to kill him right there on the spot. And I planned this whole thing. I called this job. I was working over in Gardena. And I called this job and I told him I had this terrible accident that hadn't happened yet. And I have not owned a driver's license until I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know why. And I got him in the car. I took a couple of half gallons of Red Mountain. But I got him in the car. And I turned the wheel of the car on the Harbor Freeway. I had no thought of getting myself hurt. I had no thought at all. I was just going to get rid of this one. And I turned the wheel of the car and I took 25 feet of the guardrail and went down 30 feet in the bankman and I thought I killed me a Mexican. Now what I learned out of that, folks, is that if you're going to kill one Mexican, you've got to kill the whole bloody family. <laughs> because they don't take too kindly to you messing with the people, even if they do call you Annie the Irish Mexican. I also learned that when you run with Mexican people, you don't yell cops. I yelled cop one night down in Long Beach, and they used to have telephone boots in California. I don't know if you don't have them here anymore, but we did have telephone boots. And he kicked the door, and he kicked me, and I yelled, Uncle, do you see I have no illusions? There's not something missing here. I crawled out of the phone booth. Normal people go home, but I didn't. I crawled out of the phone booth, and I went to the bar he was at, and I said, let's have a drink, and we'll discuss it. I have learned in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I will stay there forever. Because I was so terrified of being abandoned, I will take anything. 
Just don't leave me. God, don't leave me. I'm so scared. People are leaving me. I have learned here that people have come into my life and they have left me. And God has always replaced them with somebody else that will come into my life. And you see, those people will come back. It's just that they're on another path. And I have so many beautiful friendships in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I couldn't stand people leaving me. I ended up in Phoenix, Arizona with this guy. I also had another real weird thing inside of me. Now, I, I used to want people to hit me in order to kill that part of me. And if you hit me, you would kill that part of me, and then I would be okay. That part of me that kept screwing up. You know, I've been sober 15 years, and nobody in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has found it necessary to hit me. Now, there are those that would have liked to have hit me when I got here. They just haven't found it necessary to hit me. And through this program, you have chipped away at that part of me, because, you see, I've since learned that if you kill that part of me, you kill all of me. I, end, I got thrown out of Almond Shores because my language upset the sailors. <laughs> I ended up in Phoenix, Arizona with this guy, and I had a very belligerent mouth, and I said things that God truck drivers don't even say. And I got very belligerent, and I don't remember too much about this, but I said some things to this guy's wife, and Mexicans don't like you to talk to their wives in the manner I was talking to this woman. But I promptly left the bar, and I don't remember saying the things they said I said. And I went out to the car, and I lay down in the backseat of the car to pass out. And four guys came out after me, and they pulled me out of the back seat of the car, and they beat the hell out of me. And one guy said, we'll go get a truck, and we'd run over her. And the guy went and got the truck. And to this day, I don't know, because I'd been drinking for about four days straight up there, and I don't know where I got the sense to roll off that road, but I used to sit up in my early sobriety, and I would see those headlights coming, and I would sit straight up in bed. And these three guys jumped, and they ran, and I rolled off that dirt road, and that truck went past me, and I got up, and I don't know where I am, because, you see, I'm also the type of drunk. I live by four mailboxes, a Ralph's Market, or some bloody sign. And they see, and I never get last names, and Alcoholics Anonymous works real well for me. I never know anybody's last name. And I, how am I ever going to get back to Los Angeles, and I need a drink, and my face looks like that mag truck has run over me, and my dress is all torn, and my hair is full of gravel, and the guy comes along, and he picks me up. And we go to get a bottle of wine and we go to a dirty motel. That's how I learned to solve my problem. I have no idea, folks, how to solve my problem. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, you talked a great deal about dying. God, I know what it's like to die. I know what it's like to die out there when you're drinking. And I also know what it's like to die when you come into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you have to die to oneself. And you have to die to those old ideas because I came in with a lot of old ideas. The only new idea I had was the fact that I might be an alcoholic. And I wasn't too sure that your new ideas were going to work for me. I lived over in Gardena, and I died a thousand times in this little room. Folks, I want you to know, I've got to tell you this. You should see the room I've got here. It's absolutely gorgeous. I'm standing in there, and I'm thinking, if my friends could see me now. <laughs> You know, there's a thing that goes around that gal with the long, slinky black dress, and she's smoking those Virginia Slims, and she says, we've come a long way, baby. 
Yeah, I've come a long way, and you've dragged me after on those 12 steps, each step dragging, kicking, and screaming. And that I've come a long way working this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I lived in this little room over in Gardena, and I died. God, I died. It was my four-by-four. Four. It had a hot plate. It had a sink and had cockroaches, and I had Annie. And you had to go down the hall to take a shower, and I didn't take too many showers, folks. Because, you see, I couldn't talk to you when I wasn't drinking. And you'd give me a couple of drinks, and then I could talk to you. Because I was so terrified inside, I walked around and I hugged my head with shame because I was so afraid that you were going to find something out about me. And so I would start drinking in order to get down the hall to take a shower, and I'd always overshoot the mark, so I never took a shower. I remember one night in this little room, I remember curled up, and I was just curled up in the fetus position, screaming inside. I was screaming inside. I wanted somebody to understand me. One person, just one lousy person to understand me. If I could just find one person to understand me, I would be okay. It seemed that nobody in the world seemed to understand me. I never knew that God was going to send me rooms of people that would understand me. And I would get up and I got dressed this one night to set out to find that one lousy person to understand me. And it would always end up the same way. I always ended up getting beat up and thrown out of cars and walking one more time. This gal I started to call Ireland at this time in my life. I never paid any of the bills. Somebody else always had to pick it up. But I started to call Ireland and I blame my father. And I call him and I tell him you shouldn't have done this to me. I loved your country, but I was not equipped for it. But I had no idea that it was alcohol that was doing it to me. I ended up, this gal took pity on me at this time in my life and she moved me out of this room. And I had a paper sack. And I had a green card. And I had an old pair of pants and an old pair of shoes, and I was to take another little geographic, and I was to go to Long Beach. Now, when I got to Long Beach, because, you see, I knew it was all those lousy people, all those Mexicans that I was running around with that was screwing up my life. They had nothing to do with alcohol. And I got to Long Beach, and I'm changing friends, and they tell me in Alcoholics Anonymous that the alcoholic has got a lot of pride, and I didn't know that I had a lot of pride. A little gal over in Gardena had taught me how to write my name because she was tired of filling out my applications and signing them for me that she taught me how to write my name so I didn't know how to do that I didn't make an X and I told people to write a four-year college degree because I'd walk across UCLA campus one day and automatically got a four-year college degree and all these well-meaning people would get me all these fancy jobs because the CR always looked for an easier softer way I ended up working the bars and I ended up down in Anaheim Street and Anaheim Street is part of Skid Row in Long Beach, and I ended up down there working the bars. And while I was down there, I met this skinny, puny little guy, and he was skinny, and he was puny, and he's from Minnesota. <laughs> and he asked me to date him, and I said, you got a job? And he said, no. I said, I don't date guys who don't work. But he kept coming back, and that really fascinated me and we got hooked up and he wanted to get married so bad I never saw anybody so anxious to get married but he wanted to get married but he hadn't done the very thing that would have made me convinced that he wanted to marry me but in the 12 and 12 and step A it talks about bringing out the finer character defects in other people and God I was a master of bringing out the finer character defects in men especially he gave me two of the nicest shiners I ever owned 
And I was totally convinced that he loved me and I married him on that basis. <laughs> I knew that he was absolutely in love with me. And we got married and we were to come up to Minnesota, to Argo, Minnesota. I believe it is on the map, as those of you might know it. And he was to take me away from all these horrible people that I was running around with in Long Beach. And I thought I was going to drink in a manner I always wanted to come accustomed to. And he got me up here and a strange thing happened. All those people from Long Beach moved to this little town. They, <laughs> their names were different, you know, the faces were different, but they all drank just like me. They're still talking about 1965 when Annie Parent came back to Argo, Minnesota. God, I helped everybody take out the dirty laundry, and I just thought this was really neat. But this guy started acting real strange. He started taking bottles out of my purse. He started telling me when I could drink and when I couldn't drink. He wanted me to get up in the morning and fix some breakfast. He wanted me to do his laundry, and I said, I married you, didn't I? You know, I didn't know that I had to do all this other bull. You know, I had no idea that all of this other responsibility went there. I had to wash his dirty underwear. I met his mother and I met his father, and both his parents are dead today, and they were very, very, very nice people. Very, very nice people. And God has allowed me to make an amends to those people before they had to go on. But when I met them, I was not impressed with them at all. His mother didn't drink, she didn't smoke, she didn't gossip, she went to church on Sunday and she didn't screw around, and we had nothing in common. <laughs> and she kind of looked at me and thought, my God, where did he find this one? Now I told you what kind of wine I drank. I drank ripple wine. But God, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says we switch to fine wines. I, you know, I don't identify with that. And I'd like to think that I had fine wine in my life. This woman didn't drink, but by God, she made the best choked cherry wine I ever drank. And I found it, and I took it out. And, you know, those old uh, houses, those old farmhouses, they got all these nooks and crannies, all these hiding places. Well, I sniffed it. Alcoholics have got good noses for booze. And I sniffed it out, and I took it, and I served it to some people. We drank the whole thing up. And this woman, if her eyes could have been dagger, she would have cut me in two. And being a connoisseur in wine, I looked at her and I said, Lucy, don't worry about it. Buy a bottle of Thunderbird tomorrow. <laughs> she never really appreciated that. Five months into living up there in that country, I decided that I wanted to divorce this guy because I'd made a terrible mistake. And we had to head back to California because I knew that Mexican was over there waiting for me. Now, I weighed all of 85 pounds at that time of my life. I had to shake so bad I was jumping out of my skin. And so we left Minnesota, and I had another one of those brainstorms. And the brainstorm was, someone had told me that if you have a baby, you automatically grow up. One more time, folks, they lied to me. And I got pregnant, and five minutes after I'm pregnant, I don't want to be pregnant no more. And the doctor I found put me on beer and wine. I said one glass of wine a day and one beer a day, and I was having a six-pack a day and half a gallon. I spent that nine months of that pregnancy by the toilet bowl. I hope that some alcoholic invents toilet bowls with nice scenery for us alcoholics who like to lie there. <laughs> so you don't have to look at that white porcelain all night long. There was five other girls in that apartment building that were all pregnant, and there's something very special about women who are pregnant. I don't believe I ever had that, but I've had the opportunity to sponsor women in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that are pregnant, and they are very, very special. They are very beautiful glow about them. All these girls went in and had their babies, 
and they all came home and they were full of joy and they were all happy and Plutz was the next one to go in. And I went in and I had my baby and those things that those girls talked about didn't happen. When they put my baby in my arms, I didn't get an overwhelming feeling of love, love and joy and happiness and that everything was going to be wonderful. I got an overwhelming feeling of responsibility and what do I do now? And I took that baby home and I wanted to be a good mommy. Whatever a good mommy is, I wanted to be a good mommy. And many, many, many nights my husband had have to take me off of this little baby. And I'm so ashamed to tell you this, but I abused that little girl. I remember when she was six months old, I remember sitting in this old chair. And I no longer was drinking out of a glass, I just tipped the wine bottle to my mouth. And I remember sitting there screaming at God, I hated him. I hated him with everything I had, I hated him. Because I couldn't understand why he made somebody like me. And why couldn't I be like those other girls? Why couldn't I feel something for this little baby that hadn't harmed anybody or hadn't done anything? And what was so wrong with me? But I also remember when I was 19 years of age, I had gone and I had looked for help. I had gone to those psychiatrists. I had gone to a priest over in St. Lawrence's Church in Torrance. Because, you see, I'm Irish and I'm Catholic, and I was told from that high that those priests had got all the answers. And I had gone to that priest to help me. And that same priest came to me when I was in the hospital and I was bleeding internally because, you see, I really got hurt real bad from that car accident. And he gave me the last light and he sat on that bed at that night and he handed me a rosary and he said, Annie, he said, if you die tonight, he said, you are going to go to hell. He said, you better start praying. He said, you will burn in the fires of hell for sure because of the things that's going on in your life and what you've been doing. And I remember every little bit of strength I had, I picked that rosary up and I threw it at him. And I said, you take your God. And you take your rosary and you get the hell out of my life. Because if there is such a place called hell, God, I'm living it. I'm living it right between my ears. I'm living it. And I really truly believe that that was the turning point of my life, not for the better, but for the worse. And that night I picked that little girl up and I threw her in bed. And my husband, he found his escape, and his escape was he worked a lot of night shift. He worked nights. And I took off to those bars, and I thought now, because I was married, I had a license to say whatever I wanted. And you know you hit just as hard with or without a license. We ended up moving. I told him if he would move, if you'd get me a little house, I would be okay. And we got a little house, and the same little house we're still living in. And we moved to this little house, and everything was not okay. I still continued to do the things I did. I really believe that I didn't end up in the same asylums simply because I would still be doing the Thursday shuffle up and down those halls because I wanted somebody to take care of me awful bad. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous the first time, like I told you earlier, because he told me that I better do something, and that man told me I better get, get with it, I called AA because, you see, you told me about AA when I was 19. And I called at six o'clock in the morning and you didn't answer your phone. And this woman came out to the house and I wanted her to fix me before four o'clock, before he got home. And I knew that she was going to wave this magic wand. And this woman was English. She was so limey, she sounded like she stepped off a bloody boat. <laughs> and I thought, don't those people know that I'm Irish and we don't get along with those limey. And she had a hundred years sobriety, if not more. A hundred years of sobriety. And the house looks like Obama's hit it. And the kids running around with the black and blue marks and the half a gallon of wine sitting on the kitchen table. And I'm waiting for her to fix me because he's coming home. And she handed me a directory 
and I didn't know that that was the magic wand at that time. I had no idea that that was the magic wand. And she said, you've got this little girl, she said, and I don't go to night meetings anymore because I've got night blindness. You will have to go to meetings at night. And my husband came home that day, and he walked in the door, and I told him what I did. And I have never seen him that happy since. Man, was he happy. He was grinning from ear to ear. And he said, I will take you down to that meeting. And I said, no, this girl come and, come and get me. And he said, no, you call her and tell her you meet her. And I did. I called that gal and told her I'd meet her there. And he took me down to the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we went into that meeting, and he's running around telling everybody I'm a newcomer. Now, folks, I don't know what a resentment is, but I was pissed. <laughs> I have no idea what a resentment is. And if anything I can't stand is for this guy to be happy, because I had worked real hard in making him miserable. And here he's all happy that we're going to go to this AAA. And I left that night, and I felt so bad, and I didn't want to go back. And I kept going back to that Tuesday meeting. I never stayed. I never didn't. Someone said it to my Hank said it earlier, that he never heard him say, don't drink. I didn't know you that weren't supposed to drink. I thought we were going to take turns and taking care of each other. You know, one week you get drunk and I would take care of you. Next week I get drunk and you take care of me. And they read a lot. That's all they did. They read. They read chapter three. They read chapter five. And they read traditions. And they read a preamble. And one night they asked me to read. And I got up, and I couldn't read, but I got up. And the man in the front row knew that I couldn't read, and he said the tradition, and I repeated it after him, and I said, my God, I joined a reading program. I can't go back there. I'm not ready to learn to read yet. And I left Alcoholics Anonymous. My husband, I, they said something else to do something for somebody else, and I did. I put him in the hospital. He had a bad back. And I went out, and I got drunk, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get drunk. I didn't have a slip. I wasn't done drinking yet. And my husband came home from the hospital, and he saw I was drinking again, heavy. And he said, Annie, he said, you're drunk again. And he said, and you're going to those, that meeting. And I said, Dean, I said, nobody in the right mind can be that happy and not drink. Nobody. I said, now, I've been going down there every Tuesday night. And I said, and I've been pretty patient, and none of them are willing to share it with me. So I decided to go get my own. <laughs> he explained Alcoholics Anonymous to me and told me that Alcoholics Anonymous was a place that you didn't drink. And I continued to drink in that eight months, and I'm really grateful for that eight months. This gal kept calling me. She was a school teacher. And she would call me once a week or once a month, and, and I would give her account of how much I drank. And she'd say, Annie, I'm not interested in your drinking. I want to be your friend. God, I long for a friend, but the price to be her friend was too high. I would have to go to those meetings, and I didn't want to go to those meetings. And I'd get off the phone, and I'd think, yeah, I bet she wants to be my friend. She wants me to go to those lousy AA meetings, and I don't want to go to those meetings. So I got another one of those brainstorms. I decided what it was. It was a recruiting thing, and I would recruit somebody for you and get you off my case. So I called this friend of mine in Long Beach, and I said, Eileen, you're an alcoholic, and you ought to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> And she said, okay. <laughs> so I called this gal back and I said, I found somebody for you. And she said, good. She said, I'll come and get both of you. <laughs> you know, those sober alcoholics are really cunning, you know, real cunning. And I couldn't say no to her. So she came and she got both of us and she took us to a meeting. And that night there was another gal there with Sue M. And we were walking out of the club. 
And she looked at me and she said, Annie, when are you coming back? I said, I'm not an alcoholic. She is. Look at her. But you know, God works in strange and mysterious ways because that was the thing. Every time I picked up a drink, I would hear that woman say, when are you coming back? And when I was ready to come back, I was ready to come back. Alcohol whipped me. On my last drunk, it was a four-day drunk, and I ended up getting out of, thrown out of several bars, and I ended up getting beat up one more time. Some people took me home, and in that eight months, my husband was no longer coming home. In that eight months, people were no longer coming by the house. And I got home that night on June 16, 1968, and I went in, and I wasn't drunk, nor was I sober, and I wanted to commit suicide. Now, I'm not big on suicide, folks. When I mention suicide down in our area, they know I'm just going to jump off the curb. <laughs> I, you know, it's just not my bag, suicide. I, in fact, now that I'm getting the hang of this living, I like it. You know, I'm curious to see what God's got planned for me in the next year. And I went in, and the strongest thing I had in the house was a big bottle of anison. I probably would have got real sick. And I, my neighbor, who never stayed up past 10 o'clock, came over to the house. And, she took, and I called Ireland for one more time, and my dad hung up on me. And she located my husband, and he came home, and he took one look at me, and he left. And she said, Annie, why don't you go back to Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, they don't understand me there either. She said, why don't you go back and try? I don't know what happened between 2 o'clock and the next morning, but something happened, and you explained it very well for me when I came here. And you explained it that it's a moment of clarity. But on Sunday morning, on June 16th, I sat in this old chair, and my little girl was running around with her legs all black and blue, and her diaper half off. And Dean was sitting in this old chair with his head down, wringing his hands. And I said, I saw where I was going, and I didn't want to go in. This man had picked me off, off of Anaheim Street, and he dusted me off. And he tried to give me some semblance of a home and a life. Now, I'm a gal that came off of Beacon Street in San Pedro. And someone mentioned here tonight that Clancy was up in Wyoming looking for those girls. Now, you see, Clancy, I was real cheap. Because, you see, I never charged because I couldn't handle a rejection. I ended, I saw where I was going, folks, and I didn't want to go it. I didn't want to go back. I just could not go back. And I looked at my dean and I said, I was going to call that gal that wanted to be my friend. And he looked at me and he said, Annie, go ahead, have another win. You have never completed anything in your life and you won't stay there either. And I said, I'm not doing it for you, nor am I doing it for her. I got to go see. I can't stand living inside of me anymore. I just got to go see. And I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was on a Sunday morning, and I sat very close to the door, and I sat on my hands, and I shook so bad. And there was a man up here like I am tonight, and if there's nothing I know, I know what he told me, and it holds true for me now as it did that night. And he told me what I suffered from. He told me that I had a threefold disease. I had an allergy to the body, coupled with an obsession to the mind, and a spiritual illness. And he told me that I could get sober. And he told me I was to go to meetings the same way I drank. Now, I'm a daily drinker and a periodic drunk. And he said I was to go to meetings every day. And I left that meeting, and I'd like to tell you that I didn't want to take a drink, and I would be lying to you because I wanted to drink so bad. God, I wanted to drink more than anything in my life I wanted to drink. I wanted to take one little beer to take that knot out of my gut and stop my head racing so bad and stop these shaking. And I'd hear the man say, you don't take the first drink and you don't get drunk. And I went to another meeting. I sit in an awful lot of meetings still today. I go to three meetings today, a week for me today. 
Uh, I go to more meetings than most newcomers go to meetings because, you see, that's where my strength lies, is in these rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to tell you that I got well. I didn't. I got sicker in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got very, very, very sick in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was nine months sober and nine months pregnant in that order. I went to the hospital and I knew that I was going to get those feelings that those mommies talked about. I knew that I was going to feel those feelings for that baby when they put him in my arms. I didn't get those feelings, but God knew exactly what I needed. The obsession for alcohol was removed from me, and I admitted to my animal self that I was an alcoholic. And the big book tells me that is the first step in recovery. And because of my secrets and because I couldn't tell you all about me, I went around Alcoholics Anonymous, and I made a lot of noise, and I screamed and I yelled, but I couldn't tell you that there was a lot of things that I couldn't do. And I walked home, and I would walk my house, and I'd have the big book under my arm, and I would hold my head together, and I would pace back and forth, thinking that all of that information from that big book was going to go directly through my arm to my brain. And people were saying things like, you really get it out there, Annie, you really tell it how it is. Yeah, I told you how it was. I told you how it was, and I went home, and I took it all back, and I was absolutely, totally insane. I was two years sober, and I gave birth to another little baby girl. And there is some things, folks, where I refuse to give up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have learned that how not to get pregnant now. <laughs> and I still didn't get those feelings. And my sponsor was coming to the house and she was taking these babies out of the house. And she was taking them to her house because she knew what I was doing. I ended up at two and a half years sober and I'm not proud of it. I'm really not. But you see, there's a reason for everything. Everything has its reason. And I beat my son and I beat him till his eyes rolled back on his head. And the man came to the door. And to see those coincidences with alcoholics, they're 10 miles away from home and they happen to stop by your house to have a cup of coffee. And the man came to the door and I stood there with all the horror I had inside of me that I come to you. And he took that baby away from me and I stood there and I knew, I knew that I was totally insane. And the only thing I knew was that I was not to drink. That's all I knew. No matter what happens in my life, I do not take up a drink. And I went to a meeting that night, and I came into a meeting, and I asked them to help me. I said, somebody's got to help me. Please, somebody help me. I can no longer live and do the things I'm doing to my children and to my husband, and I can no longer live like this, and I'm going absolutely insane. I had done all the things that you told me to do. I was very active in institutional work. I went to a lot of meetings. I picked up those ashtrays. I went, <laughs> yeah, I did pick up those ashtrays and wash those cups. I had heard the 12 promises in Alcoholics Anonymous and you promised me. You promised me when I came through those doors of Alcoholics Anonymous that I would know peace of mind, that I would intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle me, that fear of people would leave me and I'm absolutely terrified and none of those things were happening for me. And I threw a chair down, I ran out of the meeting and a woman came out after me and I cried for the first time. I couldn't cry. I couldn't cry when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Tears were not part of me. I used to look at people and they would cry and I would get very frustrated and I would sit home and I would feel those tears come up into my throat and I would swallow real hard. A guy held me one night while another one punched my face and all he wanted me to do was cry and I said, you can kill me, but I ain't gonna cry. And I cried and I cried and I cried. I know today that God made tears for, because they are truly the cleansing of my soul. I know that for me today. That woman took me to Orange County Psycho. They didn't keep me at Orange County Psycho. 
That woman was nine years sober, and that woman gave me life. I want you to know she gave me life that night. That woman committed suicide three months after she gave me life, and to this day I don't know why she did it or what was going on in her life. Nobody seems to know what was happening. I didn't, I ended up in a group of ladies who were child abusers like me, and those ladies threatened me. They were going to take my kids away from me, and I ran from that. And this doctor called me, and I'm not here to give you a plug for psychologists or psychiatrists, but I do believe that the big book says that those professional people are there to help us. I do believe that if I hadn't have had you, and if he hadn't have come along, I wouldn't be standing here before you today. And that man called me and he said he wanted to help me. And I went to him with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't find it necessary to take any of those little pills. And through that man, I found something. Because you see, I'd done a fourth and fifth, and I'd taken all that, and I pushed it down, and I pushed it down. And then when you give all this new stuff into me, all this garbage is lying right there, and it all just came up. And this man helped me tailor make a program for me. And I got in touch with a power. I got in touch with a power within me that was beyond my wildest dreams. I surrendered, like the big book says, we abandon ourselves to God as we understand God. And I surrendered all of me. My life has not been the same since, folks. It was like that 180 degree turn. It's like I told you earlier how much I hated a God. Today I can tell you I love him very much because he has worked so many wonders in my life. I, I know I'm running out of time and they're going to cut the mic off here pretty soon. But I got a couple of things I want to share with you in my sobriety. I was five years sober. And I had accepted, like the French press says, we accept the things we cannot change. Courage to change the things we can and the wisdom to know the difference. I had accepted the fact that there was no such emotion in me called love. I didn't own it. I wanted you to love me, but I didn't own that inside of me. This doctor told me I wanted somebody to love me, and I knew there wasn't anything worthwhile loving about me. And I called my sponsor and I asked her, I got real brave and I said, Lois, I said, do you love me? She said, Annie, I love you so much. And I was 27 years of age and I came to believe that there was something about me that somebody could love. But I didn't know that emotion for anybody else. I didn't have it inside. This little gal came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I stopped abusing my children. You know, I, I yell and scream at them today, folks. Now, I don't want you to get thinking that I'm pure here. I'm not. But I don't beat them, I don't leave marks on them, and I don't abuse them. Uh, I am able to hold them today and hug them and, and kiss them, and I got a good relationship with my children today. But this little gal came to a program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and nobody had ever asked me to be their sponsor. Then, in fact, the old timers used to get that newcomer and move them away. They were afraid I was going to contaminate them. And I, they asked me, she asked me to be a sponsor, and I told her I would share with her the things that I had found in Alcoholics Anonymous. And this little girl had used a lot of LSD. And she came into a meeting one night to my home group, and she was over in the corner, and she was hallucinating. Now, I don't know anything about drugs. And she was six weeks clean and sober, and she was hallucinating. And I went over to that little girl, and I took her out of that meeting, and I went into the bathroom with her, and I sat down on the floor and I rocked her like a baby. And that little girl looked at me with the bluest eyes I've ever seen in anybody. And she said, God, Annie, she said, you love me so much. You see, things have to come to me in feelings. 
And I felt that. It was like electricity going through me. And I started to cry. And I said, God, Cindy, I do love you so much. You see, God didn't allow me to feel that when they put my babies in my arms. It had to come from another woman, an Alcoholics Anonymous. And through that little girl, I had been able to love an awful lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I really believe in the women in Alcoholics Anonymous. I go to a lot of women's meetings because there is a lot of strength there. They've taught me so many things on how to be a wife and how to be a lady and how to be a whole person. Tonight I can tell you I'm a whole person. And when I came to you, I was not a whole person. I was seven years sober and I made another big drastic decision. I decided to send my kids to Catholic school. <laughs> and my motive behind sending those kids to Catholic school, not because I wanted, you know, the motive behind that was to get back at all those rotten nuns for all the rotten things they ever done. And I was going to get these kids to do it for me. And God has a strange sense of humor. I ended up making amends to these rotten nuns. And I ended up being the librarian for the next six years. I just quit the job. <clears throat> and what has been so strange about that was when they offered me the job, I said, no, I can't do it. And I went home and I called a member of AA and they said, Annie, how it works honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, and willingness is the key. And I went back there and I said, I'd be willing, and I went into that little library and they paid me. Would you believe that? Those Catholics paid me. I was never so impressed in my life. <laughs> and I stood in that library and I looked around at all these books and I said, God, I hope the hell you don't expect me to read all those books <laughs> because you and I are in trouble. But through that doctor, he found a lady psychologist, too, who tutored me and taught me how to read and taught me how to write. And I want you to know, folks, that I just graduated on this year on my 15th birthday. And I got to spend the time with my family up in Wisconsin. I was up there a couple of weeks ago, and those are my family. You are my family. And I went by on my 15th birthday in AA, and I picked up that diploma, and God is so good. If you had told me when I came here 15 years ago, I would never have believed you because I was totally convinced I was stupid. My father passed away a couple of years ago, and I listened to Don Bruno a couple of weeks ago. And he did something for me. It was like, it, I can't explain it to you except that Don is very special and something very magical happened for me at that particular meeting. But my dad was a very hard man and my dad died from the disease of alcoholism. My dad weighed 56 pounds and he had cirrhosis of the liver and he never got to have the things that I had had here in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I went home five years ago and I wanted this man to love me so bad. My dad always called me, told me I was no good and I never would be any good. And he was a very abusive and very angry, very hurtful man. Today I understand him a little bit more. And I wanted, I had expectations at 11 years of sobriety and expectations will kill you every time. And I went home and I expected him to see. 
and there were seven of us home and my you know most Irish raised priests and nuns my father raised a whole bunch of alkies and we're all in the bedroom and at that time he looked at us and he said he hated us he said I hate every one of you he said every one of you have been a mistake he said and every one of you should have been drowned at birth and God I just stood there and I started to cry and it was like someone stabbing me in the heart because that's not what I wanted I don't want to be a mistake when I came to you 15 years ago. I knew I was one of the biggest mistakes God ever made. And you told me that God didn't make mistakes and that I was not a mistake. And I stood there and for one brief moment again in my life, I believed that I was a mistake. And I remember reading something in the prophet because I read a lot today. And the prophet said that our children come through us, they're not of us. And they see, I came through those people, but I'm not of those people. I'm of you. You're, you're the people that saw beyond for me when nobody else could see beyond for me. You're the ones that sat with me for hours and hours. You're the ones that saw a woman and you pulled her out and I walked tall with dignity today in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. God bless each and every one of you.